you're an eager young adult, wanting to better your prospects beyond your provincial village. Taking the sheep to market just isn't for you. But how do you get out, see the world, and maybe party a little bit? Then as now, you go to college. Join us as we go back to school at the medieval University of Paris. Welcome to this episode of Paris Gone By, the Parisian history podcast for the curious traveler. I'm Michelle, your host and guide to the Paris of the past. September brings us la rentrée in France, the time of year when everyone is back from their extended summer vacations and re-entering school and work. To honor this annual event, let's take a look at how hitting the books looked in medieval Paris. Don't worry, there are no exams or homework, I promise. First, let's set the scene. Medieval Paris was mostly crammed within its city walls, The walls built by King Philip Augustus, or Philippe Auguste, around 1200, had the most impact on the early creation of the University of Paris. As the walls went up, so too did the power of the French kings as they expanded their territory and centralized their administration in Paris. Alongside this royal consolidation of power, Paris was also rapidly becoming a center of knowledge and education. This started in the 12th century, pre-Philip Augustus, with the cathedral schools associated with Notre Dame, the abbeys of Saint-Genevieve and Saint-Victor, and others. However, the students and the masters quickly realized that they wanted out from under the ecclesiastical thumb. While they were still reliant on the church for the validation of their studies in the form of diplomas and licenses to teach, The scholars sought to break free from the rigid ideas of the conservative church leaders. They wanted the freedom to debate theological ideas and other radical topics that did not sit well with the church. So basically, this feels very familiar, and it won't be the last time in this episode. Through a series of decrees, papal bulls, and other official documents, the University of Paris was granted some pretty serious freedom to do their own thing. They did not, however, break free of the church entirely. This is because they couldn't, nor would they think that they should be able to separate in the sense that we would have today. First, to the medieval Catholic European, knowledge was passed down from God. To dedicate yourself to the pursuit of knowledge was to dedicate yourself in service to God. This was the unquestioned and natural order of their world. Second, the church overall provided cover for the scholars. Philip Augustus himself allowed the university members to be considered clergy members of the church in the eyes of the law. This meant that civil authorities couldn't touch the recalcitrant teachers or drunken students except to deliver them to the hands of the church leaders. And in my head, they're like the church popo, right? <laughs> You're in trouble. You got to go. One of the advantages of this arrangement was that the church law, formerly called canon law, was notoriously lax. Even murderers were very often lightly punished, kind of a slap on the wrist. The king had handed the university a huge win when he made that decree. 
But Philip was very wily. He's actually one of my favorite medieval French kings. He probably knew that it would help the university grow in popularity, which in turn would bring prestige to Paris and increase its revenue as well. And then the Pope at the time, the energetic Pope Innocent III, he was kind of everywhere, went even further by placing the university under his direct rule. So this meant that instead of reporting to the leaders at Notre Dame, the students and the scholars reported directly to the Pope, which gave them a little bit more freedom. But still, in order to receive their licenses to teach, which basically conferred a doctoral degree, you had to be examined by the Chancellor of Paris at Notre Dame, and this was a religious office. So while you may have had the freedom to debate deep theological issues and party hard without external consequences, you still had to work hard and be able to provide the answers and the arguments that the conventional church wanted from you in order to receive your license. This was important because in most cases, the students were actually looking to go into the church as a career. All of your education was in the service of God in the hopes of actually serving God from within the church. Unlike today, this was an excellent avenue for moving up the economic ladder for poor students. Even if we go into the early modern and Renaissance period, this was an important and viable path out of poverty. The powerful Cardinal Wolsey in England went from being a butcher's son to the single most powerful man in England under Henry VIII through his ecclesiastical career. He only really stumbled when he didn't read the room correctly with the whole Anne Boleyn situation. And for wealthy students, you could be fast-tracked into positions of power, such as bishops, archbishops, and cardinals. This was also a way to avoid joining the military, because if you weren't the firstborn son, you didn't inherit anything and you had to figure out your own path. And the most common path was either to join the church or join the military. Cardinal Richelieu of Musketeer fame was of the minor nobility in France. He attended the University of Paris, and on top of all of the other things he's famous for, he became headmaster of the College of the Sorbonne and was responsible for some of the first permanent buildings of the university. This includes the still-standing Chapel of the Sorbonne, which is where Richelieu is very prominently buried. But wait, If Richelieu was building some of the first permanent structures for the school, what did they do before the time of the Musketeers? Well, if you were looking to attend the University of Paris in the medieval period, you attended class wherever your class happened to be. Unlike Oxford, that was founded about the same time as the University of Paris, there were no formal campuses or educational facilities. This sounds weird, but it makes sense in the context of a city that was already constrained within protective walls. There simply wasn't the real estate for it like there was at Oxford or Cambridge. The school, or rather schools, would have to make do with what they could. Sometimes there were open-air classes, and this is part of what gives the area that nickname of the Latin Quarter, because almost all subjects were taught and discussed in the Latin language. But Paris being Paris, the weather wasn't always amenable for outdoor classrooms. So the students also learned in rented rooms, borrowed spaces, and basically anywhere they could squeeze in. This ad hoc approach to classrooms 
extended to the rest of the organization of the school as well. The University of Paris and most of the universities at the time were corporations of multiple groups, kind of closer to a modern-day corporation with a bunch of siloed divisions. There was an overarching hierarchy of power, but it was still kind of messy. And this is where it gets a little bit tricky. I'm going to try to do this in a way that doesn't require a scorecard, but here we go. Basically, you had two levels of education. These two levels were broken up into four groups called faculties. The lower level only had one faculty, or kind of what we would call a department today, and that was the Faculty of Arts. It was at this level where you earned your baccalaureate degree, or otherwise known as your Bachelor of Arts. At this level, you studied seven topics, which were broken into two further groups. The Trivium, which consisted of grammar, rhetoric, and logic, and the Quadrivium, which consisted of arithmetic, astronomy, geometry, and music. As a a musician and music fan, of course, music would have been my favorite. And frankly, as an English teacher, I cannot imagine spending, they say, a year learning grammar. That sounds horrible, even for me. You had to go through this level first before you could move on to the next level. And you may have already guessed it. It is the master's level. You had three faculties or departments to choose from here medicine, law, or theology. Of course, theology was the most prestigious because of that whole in service to God thing. And then it was law and then medicine. In Paris, in fact, you could only study canon or church law. Civil law wasn't permitted. So you would have to go to another school if you wanted to be a high-powered lawyer to the rich and the noble. And while Paris was famous for its medical faculty, Medicine was still a little bit dodgy, and personally, I would take my chances with the local midwife or herbal woman, in most cases, over a doctor, no matter how well-trained. Once you had survived the gauntlet of what could be upwards of 15 years of education, you were considered a master, and you could go forth and do your thing. According to most of the documents I found, if you wanted to teach, however, you had to earn your license which in turn made you a PhD or a doctor, so you were given a doctorate. Some sources don't delineate this progression as clearly, and I feel like it may have been as vague to them as it is to us now. To get the doctorate in general, though, you had to prove your expertise to that chancellor of Paris at Notre Dame. If you passed, you were now like Dr. Ross Geller, and you could teach at university. I think so far so good. This feels pretty familiar to us. But now we dive into the trickier part. Not only were the classrooms in short supply, but so was housing. And even 800 years ago, Paris was expensive. The rich were able to afford their own room and board, but that sheep herder's son would need some assistance. Wealthy patrons and some religious houses started creating what they called colleges, These are not the equivalent to modern-day colleges in the United States. They were a mix of boarding house, fraternal order, and study hall, and they were funded by those patrons and by other donations. These colleges would provide room and board, libraries, mentorship, leadership, sometimes direct education from uh, masters, and a fraternal identity to those students in need. Often, outsiders were able to access some of those facilities and services like the libraries and the lectures for a fee. 
And the colleges, or at least those free scholarships to the colleges, were usually limited to a low number of students at any given time. The average seems to be somewhere around 20 students. So as one graduated, another one could come in. The colleges would often develop fame in their own right outside of the university. And in fact, one of them became so famous that its name became synonymous with the University of Paris. And of course, I mean the College of Sorbonne. Founded around 1255, it depends on how you define founding, in buildings that were granted to Robert de Sorbonne by King St. Louis IX himself, the college was focused on theology. Robert is himself an example of the poor kid making good. He came from the small village of Sorbonne, and he came to Paris as a poor student who begged to pay for his room and board, so he was actually begging for alms, basically. After he achieved his doctorate, he began his career in the church. He was a canon, which is sort of a cleric or priest attached to a specific cathedral, first at Cambrai, and then he came back to Notre Dame de Paris before being noticed by King Louis. He became a chaplain in the king's household, and some suggest that he was Louis's confessor, which is a very high position of power. And from that position and influence, he was able to found his namesake college to provide opportunities for kids just like himself. He, though, did not seem to limit the college to just scholarship students. Some did. And it seems that he accepted paying students whose tuition then in turn helped pay for the scholarship students. The school's reputation and that of its apparently incredible library were soon legendary. And within his own lifetime, the Collège de Sorbonne was the place to study theology, not just in France, but across Europe. And it remained so until it was closed during the French Revolution. So now we know where the students were studying, what they were studying, and why they were studying. But who were the students? First, they were exclusively male. Some women did receive advanced education, but it was through private tutors or convent education. They weren't permitted into the university system. Probably the most notorious case of a private tutor teaching a female student is the Eloise and Abelard story which I want to cover in a different episode, but basically Abelard was a famous theologian hired to tutor a canon's niece named Eloise. Those lessons became intimate. She became pregnant. They got busted. He lost his reputation and some valuable body parts, and she went on to become an abbess. The students were also not just Parisian or even French. They came from all over Europe and at the lower faculty level formed into ethnic or cultural groups known as nations. Originally, there were four. The French, which covered all of the Romance languages, not just people from France. The Norman nation, which was exclusively those from the region of Normandy. Picard, which has nothing to do with Jean-Luc, unfortunately, which was roughly people from northeastern France and what is now Benelux. And the English nation, which was basically the British Isles and everyone else, so the Germanic states, the Slavic states, and Scandinavia. Eventually, the English nation was renamed the German nation, thanks to either the Hundred Years' War 
or the earlier Thomas Beckett scandal. Sources varied. So basically because England and France just couldn't get along in the medieval period. These nations had their own leadership, and it feels like from the descriptions, they would be very similar to large fraternities now. There were rivalries and bad behavior and fierce group identities. Some places have suggested there was even hazing as part of the deal. So I think, again, this all feels pretty familiar. The students, well, they behaved like typical university students, causing mayhem and occasionally striking and rioting in the streets. And these riots could get so bad that the school sometimes shut down. So this isn't exclusively a 20th century thing when we think of the May 1968 student riots. There was one episode in 1229 that supposedly started after a kerfuffle over the price of a glass of wine. The students thought they were being overcharged. The barkeeper disagreed. The barkeeper and his neighbors then roughed up the students. And the next day, the students came back and roughed up the barkeep and his friends. The barkeep appealed to the regent who sent soldiers to punish the students which was in contravention of the established order. Things got even more out of hand, and some of the students were actually killed, and some of those students were foreign nationals. They weren't French. This whole thing shut down the school for two years while they tried to figure it out between the crown and the pope and the school. All of the students were dispersed to other schools in other cities, which caused an economic crisis in the Latin Quarter. This feels both very French since it started over the price of wine and somehow very current, this sort of overreach of of governmental power. When they were actually tending to their lessons, the students had to learn through a combination of lectures, memorization, and dialogue, along with the presentation of their own lectures and arguments. So no long papers or mindless quizzes but the expectations of the masters were very high. You needed to be able to think quickly, speak persuasively, and show that you knew your topic. And this is what I imagine going to an Ivy League school or Oxford or Cambridge even today must feel like. You're probably still receiving a mostly medieval style education, not the topics, of course, or the subjects, but the style. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I think that this application of your knowledge, making sure that you can apply what you've learned, is far more valuable than just the simple regurgitation of short essays or quizzes. So assuming you were an impoverished student, you would find a way to join a college through networking, luck, or other means akin to fighting to get a scholarship today. You would study hard, party some, and graduate with your master's or doctorate and then you would work your way up the career ladder. The only differences between then and now really are that you had to do, of course, a lot more religious study. Your class could get rained out literally. You had to do it all in Latin, and your career ladder involved a pretty close relationship with the big guy. And of course, the campus was lacking in gender diversity, which was probably okay, since a lot of the students were going into church careers, which were supposed to be celibate. Yeah. (laughs) You know, there's theory and there's practice, right? 
So where can you get that medieval collegiate spirit now? Well, a lot of the spaces, what did exist, are now sadly lost. But we do have a few places where you can ponder the medieval intellectual life. First are the streets of the Latin Quarter themselves. While urban development and Houseman's kind of overzealous hand cleared out much of the old medieval footprint, you can still find some of it remaining in the the tangle of small streets near the river with a focus between the Rue des Ecoles, north-northeast of the Sorbonne, where it is today, and especially between the Boulevard Saint-Germain and the river. So as you get closer, it becomes more and more authentically kind of medieval. And if you've ever wandered through that gauntlet that is the Rue de la Huchette or the Rue Saint-Savarin, those little streets full of kebab shops and tourist traps, then you have definitely experienced the chaotic street life of medieval Paris. They didn't have the neon signs, and they certainly weren't eating delicious kebabs, but the atmosphere is believed to be very similar. If you want to get a sense of where Abelard and Eloise got their groove on, you can check out the streets just north of Notre Dame. They're the only remaining medieval streets left on the island, and I like to think that they're keeping Notre Dame company. In all of these cases, the buildings you'll see are largely not medieval, except for some of the churches, but the streets remain the same. And the buildings, they're not exactly young. They date from the 16th to the 19th century in most cases. So you're still getting a good dose of history. And all of the extant medieval churches like Notre Dame, when she's ready, Saint-Severin, Saint-Julien-le-Pauvre, are ready to transport you back to the medieval period. Even Midnight in Paris' Saint-Étienne-du-Mont is late medieval on top of some older churches. So it's, it's close enough. There's this really cool building, the Collège de Jardin, and this is um, one of the colleges that was founded by a religious order. And this is the last surviving remnant of a larger medieval compound. It's a little bit further east than these other locations, but what's left is this beautiful medieval structure that was the Great Hall, or they're calling the nave, that was attached to a now lost church. And you can visit parts of it for free by just walking in during business hours. The website suggests more extensive paid tours, but the schedule wasn't updated when I looked last. The links are in the show notes, though, if you want to check again. And there's also a bookstore and small cafe in there to extend your stay. To visit the location of the original Collège de Sorbonne, head to the Place de la Sorbonne off the Boulevard Saint-Michel. The buildings on the right, if you'll recall from the Musée de Cluny episode, are roughly where the Collège de Cluny, associated with the bishops of Cluny, who owned that amazing Hotel de la Cluny, which is now the Medieval History Museum. Check out that episode and the museum if you want even more medieval awesomeness. But on that street corner of the Place and Boulmiche is a Pret-a-Manger restaurant or cafe. It has no historical significance, but it does have tasty sandwiches and cookies if you need a break. Carry on after your break. Uh, never sightsee on an empty stomach. Toward the Chapel de la Sorbonne, built by Cardinal Richelieu. If it's open, drop by and say hi to Armand. Otherwise, hang a left up the Rue de la Sorbonne. In the medieval period, you would have encountered a gate at this point, built by Sorbonne with royal permission to kind of clean up the street. 
There was also one at the other end of the street facing the Hotel de la Clune. Today, we are unencumbered by gates, but watch out for the cars. It's a very narrow street. And now we're done going back to school, guys. After all of this learning, it's time to kick back and grab some wine or an ale and carouse the streets of medieval Paris, or return to the here and now and enjoy some Netflix to each their own. If you want to keep on learning, go deeper into this episode and read more of the blog, please check out the website at parisgoneby.com. If you would like to donate to my own funds, please consider buying me a coffee or grabbing a book from the boutique. The links are in the show notes. And if you loved what you heard, please do subscribe or leave a comment. It really does help bring PGB to the masses. Thank you so much for listening and have a great rest of your day. I'll be on toe.